Computer, initialize Holosuite. Good evening and welcome to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 2, Episode 20, The Maquis, Part 1. Before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. That is correct, and tonight we are not just the only two hosts. We are joined by a very special guest. Special guest, say hi. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, this is Chris. He is another host from our other podcast, The The Expanse, the Enterprise podcast. And it's been a while since we've been able to actually speak with him and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, do anything really. Uh, in regards to podcasting here, and I wanted to invite him on to this one tonight because it's a very special, very cool episode, and I thought it'd be great to have him here. So welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. So tonight, as David said, we are talking about the first part of the marquee episode for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, Who would like to give our summation? Well, Perry, you did it last week. I gave it to you last week. So I'm thinking I got to do it this week. Sound good? I mean, I'm fine with that. I just, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't mind at all. <laughs> so, you know, I'm kind of was... biting at the bit a little bit. I, I got to say, this is a great episode. Well, you could just say that you were eager and wanted to do it. So oh, well, that's biting at the bit. Eager, aren't those interchangeable phrases? <laughs> okay, David, just go ahead and do it. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, let's jump into this. This is the Marquis Part 1. Uh, so in the beginning of this episode, we have a Cardassian freighter, the Bak-Nor, on Deep Space Nine. And as the Cardassians are loading it up and getting ready to leave the station, a man posing as a Starfleet maintenance worker tampers with some part of the ship. And as the ship leaves Deep Space Nine, Jadzia Dax and Kira brief are only able to warn the ship that it seems to have a major malfunction before it completely explodes and is destroyed. Um, as they examine the debris of the Bachnor, uh shortly thereafter, O'Brien cannot immediately confirm that there was an explosion that caused this to happen. Of course, uh, uh, the... Uh, our Cardassians, they expect, are going to be very upset by this accident. So the Bajorans, they're on high alert. Federation is on high alert. But the Cardassians don't seem to be doing too much for the moment. Uh, as they continue to examine the debris field, uh, they start d- discovering traces of Mercassium, which uh, Dax then theorizes... Uh, might have actually been part of a protomatter device that would have basically kind of imploded the ship as opposed to exploding it, which would mean that it would be harder to detect it and figure out what happened. Um, later on, they do confirm that that is what happened, but for the moment, that's their theory. Uh, Commander Calvin Hudson, a ranking officer and attache in the newly uh, defined demilitarized zone along the Cardassian border, comes to the station... Uh, to help negotiate what's going on. Uh, we, we realize that he and Cisco are old friends. They know each other. He knows Dax. They joke. They have some funny banter about whether or not Cisco uh, is dating Jadzia, even though Dax is the host. You know, it's not Curzon anymore, but it's still Dax. So, um, But Cal Hudson, uh, they start talking, and we come to realize that... Uh, this demilitarized zone is an agreement between the Cardassians and the Federation that has caused some displacement for people. Uh, there are people who are on Federation colonies that are now technically on the Cardassian side of this demilitarized zone, and vice versa. There are Cardassian uh, colonists on the Federation side. And so the reason that we can surmise that the Cardassians aren't responding to this 
uh, destruction of this ship is that they they find the demilitarized zone, this treaty, to be so valuable that they aren't willing to endanger it. So they are basically letting the destruction of the Bachnor maybe go. Meanwhile, uh, Quark is approached by a Vulcan woman who uh, tells them discreetly uh, that she wants to buy a number of weapons. Uh, Quark initially responds, of course, as he does, with, oh, I, I didn't do it, whatever it is you're here for, I didn't do it. Uh, but then when he realizes that she's there to actually buy from him, he actually tries to rom romantically uh, approach her, you know, as he, you know, gets food, you know, dinner and certain wine out. But she's not interested in him in that way, or at least she doesn't She doesn't seem to understand uh, why he's doing that. Um, so Cisco is quietly approached by Gul Dukat. Cisco goes back to his quarters and finds Gul Dukat there. Gul Dukat says that he has come without official permission from the Cardassian Central Command because he wants to help Sisko figure out the truth of the destruction of the Bach Noor. Um, he seems to insinuate he knows more than, going, than was he's letting on. Um, Sisko is briefly uh, scared that Jake might have been kidnapped because Jake is not in their quarters, but Golducott is, but he realizes that Jake is fine. And Golducott asks him, to uh, go with him on a runabout to help figure out what happened with the Bachnor. Um, they want to follow, let's see, they want to uh, take the runabout to some colonies in the demilitarized zone, which Gold Dukat uh, says is not so demilitarized. Uh, they go, and Gold Dukat, ex uh, they, they see together a, a fight between two Federation seemingly aligned vessels, and two seemingly Cardassian attack vessels. But the two Federation vessels seem to pull off what is basically a, a feint, where they actually pretend like one of the ships is damaged, and they actually use that to bait in these two Cardassian ships, and then two, the two Cardassian ships are killed with military weapons, with some photon torpedoes. Before they are destroyed, Gold Dukat... Uh, tries to warn off the Cardassian vessels. You know, he reveals his identity over uh, the intercom, but they don't respond, and the Federation ships don't respond either. So they, uh, so uh, uh, Cisco and Gold Dukat go to a a planet, uh, the Vulcan Three planet, where Gull Evek, one of the Cardassian attaches in, in the demilitarized zone is in a heated debate with Cal Hudson, that same Federation uh, attache, who, again, was there to help negotiate the demilitarized zone on the Federation's behalf. Uh, they are there arguing in front of the Colonies Council about this fight that happened, and Gold Dukat and Cisco arrive to participate in this debate. Gold Evek reveals that they have captured the uh, man who was accused of... Uh, blowing up the, the ship on Deep Space Nine. Uh, it turns out um, that they got him to confess somehow to doing this, and that he somehow died in their in their, uh, in their their custody. They claim he was suicide, but uh, we think that it's probably true that they tortured him to death. Uh, so the, the colonists are very upset um, by this. Back on Deep Space Nine, Sisko and Carta and Dukat have returned... Gold Dukat is kidnapped by the Vulcan woman and a number of her associates, which turn out to be partially one of the men from that colony who was uh, debating about what happened about the ship blowing up. Um, he's he's been kidnapped. They now Cisco is in tons of hot water. A ship has blown up. There have been two kidnappings on his watch. Things are getting quickly out of hand. And so um, he's going to have to try and figure out what's going on. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, and then so uh, Cisco, Bashir, and Kira decide to follow the warp signature of the ship that kidnapped Gold Dukat, and they're able to successfully do so, and they follow the, the ship to a planet in the Badlands, where there are frequent plasma storms in which I theorize is the headquarters of this group that kidnapped Gold Dukat, which they have come to realize is named the Maquis. 
And as they land on the planet after beaming down, they are approached by the Maquis, led by none other than Hudson, Cisco's friend, uh, who is now out of uniform and seems to clearly be in charge of the Maquis group. I know that was a kind of an overshot. We got a lot of details to get into. Broad there. strokes, man. Broad yeah. strokes, as we say. <laughs> yeah. as we will get into the details, but broad strokes are fine. And again, yeah. the episode is. 30 years old. So if you haven't watched it yet, go watch it. Pause this, come back, we'll be here, we will enrich your lives, but go watch the episode. David did just fine. And again, now, what's taking you so long to watch Deep Space Nine to begin with? Yeah, like, <laughs> unless you were born, like, 20 years ago, that's really the only excuse. And even then, I won't give you much of an excuse if you call yourself a, a Star Trek fan. Right? Unless, you ju- unless you just started watching Star Trek because of Strange New Worlds. Then we can give you a pass. Uh, he will give you a pass. I won't. <laughs> so, no. But anyway, uh, a lot has going on in this episode, which is clearly why it is a two-parter. And um, we're going to get into all of that as well. But first question I always love to ask is everyone's opinions on the overall episode like what did you guys think you know when you watch this whether this is your first time watching it or the first time in a while watching it what did you think of of this first part All of right. this story well chris go ahead it's, it, i'm gonna say it, it's definitely been a while since i've watched this one um it's probably at least a couple years uh because when discovery came on my dad and i would watch that and then when discovery was what wasn't airing we'd watch deep space nine because he hadn't seen it yet um, and so, yeah, like I said, probably been in between, in between seasons one and two of, uh, Discovery or maybe two and three round in there. Um, but yeah, I definitely re- remember it from, from then actually just watching it a little bit earlier today. Um, it was, it, it was a good episode and, and I think, I think really, I, I got to remember how the, how it pays off cause I only watched the first part, but Next next week I'll, I'll I'll come come back and let you guys know. So okay, well that's good. I mean if you if you if it's been yeah. a while that you get to kind of surprise yourself a little bit there, you know. But um, uh, I know uh, David, go ahead. Oh since gosh, you, I was so happy with this episode. Oh goodness, yeah. Um, so people might remember I've said it multiple times. Lieutenant Rowe, uh, initially Instant Rowe. Uh, from TNG was one of my favorite characters. Every time I get a chance to mention her, I just gush. She's a great character. And the episode Preemptive Strike, which is the penultimate episode of TNG, uh, was about Lieutenant Rogue, and she had been just uh, uh, promoted in the beginning of that episode. Yeah. And she, in uh, spoiler alerts for that episode, but she is sent to infiltrate the Maquis, and then at the end of that episode chooses to actually join the Maquis, Maquis uh, and kind of betray her loyalty to the Federation in that episode. It is a fantastic episode. So to, when I was watching this, you know, and realizing that this episode, the Maquis Part One, is basically like a, a an episode that comes before this two part episode comes before Preemptive Strike and sets up some of the details of that episode, just made me so happy. Um, the idea yes. that the Maquis are on this demilitarized zone. The Federation has kind of abandoned them on some level. You know, that's the that's the, the kind of the plan. You know, the Cardassian side and the Federation side are, are agreed on who's got what territory, but that leaves Federation colonists in the lurch. And then they think the Cardassians are moving weapons into the demilitarized zone, are going to, you know, fight with the colonists. And so they are going to fight back. And if the Federation doesn't like it, that's they abandoned them. The Federation abandoned yeah. them. And so they are going to uh, fight for, uh, on the, themselves. And again, Lieutenant Rose is such a great character. Uh, that episode was so fantastic. And so to realize that this is all a part of what's already a great story just made me gush. I was so happy when I started realizing what this episode was going to be. And the fact that it's a two-part episode just makes it even better. Uh, Perry, you and I have been yeah. saying so many episodes should have been a two-parter. And then this one gives it to us. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I mean, really that, excited I- with this one. I think that's the the probably the real tagline for Deep Space Nine is should have been a two parter because so many of their episodes fall into that category. And David, you touched on a couple of things that will that I'd really want to go back and explain, and that is basically the 
the history, the Trek history that led us to this moment in the formation of the Marquis. So for those of us who have been watching all of Trek that came before to now, some of this will be very familiar. And um, again, as I said, David touched on some of it. So as he said, you know, in the episode, the TNG episode preemptive strike, we see Roe Laren eventually going to join the Bajoran colonists who were fighting on those um, planets that were along this recently established, um, or not yet established, fully established, demilitarized zone between the Federation and the Cardassian border. We actually see the formation of the demilitarized zone and the Federation-Cardassian Treaty in the episode Journey's End, which could be kind of forgettable because this is also the episode where Wesley Crusher finally left the Enterprise and Starfleet for good to become a traveler. That was the episode where that happened. Right. Okay. (coughs) Excuse me. So with the formation of the federation Cardassian Treaty, this demilitarized zone is sprung up, and it's basically just like what it sounds. It's an area where there can be no military installations or anything like that. And in order to um, negotiate this, planets from both sides had to be given up and basically swapped over for the other one. So the Federation right. lost some planets and gained some Cardassian ones, and vice versa. The thing about that is the where the Federation would protect and basically leave the Cardassian people alone on their planets, the Cardassians did not do the same thing for the Federation citizens that were now on their side of the demilitarized zone. They were constantly um, harassed, very aggressive, uh, mistreated, and, you know, despite initially asking for help from the Federation, they received none and were kind of left to their own devices to defend themselves and figure out this agreement uh, on, on how to live under um, Cardassian rule, basically. So that then, of course, brings us here to the Maquis and Cal Hudson. Cal Hudson was a Federation officer very much like Ben Sisko. He was a rising star, up-and-comer, a great, promising career, and he was sent out here to this, you know, very contentious area of space and basically told to be like a mediator slash governor. And the longer he was out there, the more he became sympathetic to the people he was supposed to be governing. Right. And this eventually leads him to not just joining, but really establishing the Maquis. He is the, he is the leader. He, as we find out at the end of this episode, he is the leader of the Maquis. Right. Um, but all of that hinges on so many different one-offs that I that as I did my own little deep dive here, I found it very interesting. So if you go back and you track those episodes, Preemptive Strike, Journey's End, and then a couple of episodes that we've seen already here in uh in Deep Space Nine, the whole formation of the key of the Maquis hinges on two characters. Ensign Rowe. Yep. And Gold Ducat. Okay. Uh, Gold Ducat. All right. Without Without these two characters, there would be no Maquis, there'd be no storyline, there would be none of the things that come after, which includes uh, the next part of this episode, several other episodes of uh, Deep Space Nine, and of course, all of Voyager. Like, Voyager hinges so much on the Maquis being a core group um, that kind of gets folded in. We wouldn't have it. If they had actually done this story, this episode this two-parter in particular, the way they had originally intended, we never would have got any of that. The original story actually called for them to kill off Cal Hudson and basically send Gold Ducat back on his way. There wasn't supposed to be any further development of the storyline. None of what we see of him getting, you know, captured and all that because of none of that was really supposed to happen. But Ducat was always a very compelling character, and then he just really kind of sold it being that kind of sneaky lurker like you know the scene where he is sitting in cisco's quarters when he walks in yes and seeming so like devious the devil coming out of the shadows right here he really like i I don't know how to describe he really just i guess just he just sold it he he nailed it on this performance here and it made one him a more compelling character and then the thought of the way the cardassians have been betrayed or been portrayed up to this point really changed the whole way that they were looking at dealing with the Maquis. Right. Okay. Then, of course, we have to 
give ultimate credit to Rolaren and her initial buildup of the Bajorans and their overall storyline. If Rolaren hadn't been such a compelling character and the thought of her going off to kind of being this kind of freedom fighter, you know, and how much we already loved Rolaren and rooted for Rolaren, I really don't think that we would have got any further development of the Maquis. Right. Now, I looked, and I did not find anything in regards to her popping up somewhere down the road as a Maquis leader or resistance fighter. I think that may have something to do with the fact that the actress, Michelle Forbes, had already indicated that she was essentially done with Trek for a while. She had played Rolaren for a while, including, and, and also some other characters from, you know, minor episodes in TNG's early run. Uh, you know, so I think that she just was wholly not available. We know, and we've talked about this before, that she was supposed to be the Kira mm-hmm. character. Right. Um, they were, you know, it wasn't actually going to be Kira. It was going to be Ro Laren, her being promoted and working with the Bajoran militia. But again, the actress, Michelle Forbes, was not on board at that time. So we got Kira. But, I mean, that's great because... Kira's a great character. Right. We get a lot from Kira. We always do. Even in the brief scenes that she's in here, in this episode, Kira gives us a lot to help us sympathize with these colonists fighting to yes. protect their families and stuff like that. If it wasn't for her, I think we would have lost the line of sympathy there. But all that to say, if you if you go back and you watch those episodes in this order, you watch um, Preemptive Strike first, then watch Journey's End, then you can skip a whole bunch of stuff and watch um, this episode, the Maquis, parts one and two, then skip ahead again and watch the start of Voyager, you will actually get the whole story arc of the Maquis and their world building. Huh. This is really the kind of the first time that you get that in, in Star Trek. Star Trek is not really famous for doing a lot of world building that is not about the Federation. Well, I have I to I have to ask you this real quick, or maybe push back a little bit, mm-hmm. because apparently this Marquis episode uh, came out before Preemptive Strike did. Uh, it came out in April of '94, and then Preemptive Strike came out in May of '94. So the TNG episode came out a little bit later. But I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with your overall. If you're making a statement about the character, the the Marquis character, I might have been. Growth. But, I yeah. think I might have been switching them around. I think I might have been switching Journey's End and Preemptive Strike around. I think that might have just been what happened because journey's end aired a month before this episode yes i think that's probably what you i think that's say. what it yeah. was mm-hmm. so yeah yeah excuse <laughs> me i've got my timeline slightly yeah well, yeah, yeah. i'm sure it's all good to go because this marquee <laughs> stuff i mean let me just say it i i hearing that we get more of it is great but i feel like this might like this this will be it we'll get the marquee part one part two and then whatever the voyager part is you just mentioned but then that's it I'm like, no, no. We're gonna, we have to have more. So I skipped over it intentionally because I know that okay. you haven't watched okay. it. I didn't All want right. to spoil okay. it for All you. Right. All right. But All right. Okay. Mild, mild spoiler, <laughs> there is more Maquis stuff. There is more Maquis stuff. Um, but I really wanted to, you know, we can stop here just for a second. Let's talk about the idea of freedom fighters in Starfleet, in, in the Star Trek universe. I mean, we're supposed to be accepting of the fact that we that humanity has moved beyond these types of conflicts and we're definitely more into peace treaties and negotiations and, you know, expanding our borders through cultural acceptance and assimilation. What do you guys think about a, a, the sudden contrast of a, an offshoot group of humans who are doing pretty much the exact opposite of that and kind of going back to a more rudimentary um aggressive stance towards protecting their homes, their planets, you know, fear of the other, no outsiders, so hmm. forth. Yeah, Chris, I, I, I was trying to formulate my thoughts here. <laughs> um as I do think it was an interesting interesting thing that they decided to do with that. Um it really did kind of do that world building not only not only for your well for the Federation as well, saying, hey, you know, not everybody's all sunshines, rainbows and lollipops. I mean, there's some people that are that are upset about some things. So, and um, I was just kind of kind of looking because I've got I've got all the Star Trek episodes sorted out by star date, and Maquis Part One is a star date before Journey's End. Hmm. Well, it may <laughs> be a star date before it, but in the way that it ran on TV. Um, yeah. Journey's End was first. 
uh, was definitely first. It was a month mm-hmm. before. It was a month before, actually. I know that for a fact. So, um, but you know, this is not. This is the first time that we see a kind of offshoot splinter group, whether you want to call them terrorists, freedom fighters, or whatever. Yep. But it's not the last time. For those who have been watching the newer Trek uh, shows that have been out, we hear of a new group in uh, Star Trek Picard, the Fenris Rangers, that are essentially like the Maquis. They pick, they only they're more broad. They're not trying to just protect one particular planet or series of planets. They're just kind of out there picking up causes um, and fighting for them and advocating for people when the Federation seems to basically drop the ball. And um, our own Seven of Nine from Voyager is the like the leader of the Fenris Rangers, basically, kind of going out there and leading that charge. So um, again, not the not the first time we've seen this. Certainly not the last. There are a couple of other Splinter groups um, that we see in in other Trek shows as well. But um, I just found I always find it very jarring when we come across that because again, for the longest, Starfleet is presented as the kind of the, the supreme good, right? Everybody wants to be in Starfleet. Everybody wants to be a part of the Federation. Right. There's all these other civilizations. You get all their technology, all their all their insight, all the stuff that you get when you join. And it seems like it costs so little to join, you know? So why wouldn't you want to be a part of this ever-expanding, welcoming, friendly, you know, conglomeration, right? right. Um, I mean, even the, the, the most hostile enemy we've seen so far... Uh, you know, the Klingons, the most aggressive anyway, um, have a very cozy peace treaty with the Federation, you know. So when we see these kind of splinter groups that are like, nah, man, we don't want to live on Earth. And, you know, even Cisco makes a big speech about living in paradise. Uh, it's just, again, jarring to me that these people don't want to be a part of that. Right, especially in the future. But I mean, I guess we've seen this before because we saw this with Alexis, or yeah, in um, what was that episode? Paradise Lost. Was that what that was called? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, do you think that you would want to be a part of the Federation, or do you, would you want to be in some kind of offshoot splinter group? Well, I guess for me, the what's interesting about the situation, like if we think about borders in the real world, usually borders are pretty set, or at least there's a geographical set you know it's a line it's a river now of course states and governments and countries fight over their borders all the time right so it's not uncommon for there to be disagreements about what where the border is supposed to be but again in the real world there's usually a pretty definitive geographical area that sets boundaries but with planets out in space it's more like islands in the ocean and so it's it's interesting the idea that each area is kind of isolated to some extent. And so when they're creating, you know, these borders, you know, what's a demilitarized zone, what's your side of the border, what's ours, you really could presumably see a really kind of jagged border that doesn't really look quite right. Like if, if there's a Federation colony planet that's actually closer to Cardassia than the Federation territory, well, then it makes sense on some level to say that they're outside of Federation space, therefore they don't get Federation protection, and vice versa, and that the Cardassians uh, use that against those colonists. And then the idea of a demilitarized zone is also unique. Um, When I think of demilitarized zone, I think of like North Korea versus South Korea. It's like there's a line, again, like a Mm -hmm. geographical area that is... The 38th parallel, right? Something like that. And it's, you know, it's the idea of that space is like, that's a really risky place to, you know, if you cross that border, war happens. Um, Whereas in this case, again, these colonists are left inside a demilitarized zone. Um, So I think that's pretty unique. It it kind of basically removes their, you know, it, it it forces them to be independent. It's not like the Federation said, oh, you're a part of us and we're going to defend you. It's like the Federation disowns them, uh, which is why these people are angry. It's Mm -hmm. like we've been abandoned Mm -hmm. to the predations of the Cardassians and we have to defend ourselves. And then the Federation comes along and in that episode, um, Preemptive Strike, and basically tells them you can't do it. (laughs) It's like 
You abandoned so that's us. That's interesting. That's yeah, interesting that you say that they were abandoned because if you watch the episode Journey's End and the actual formation of the Federation Cardassian Treaty, they were not abandoned. They willfully gave up their protection and representation by Starfleet and the Federation. They were they did this with the clear understanding that they would have to work on their own. Um, that is one of the key parts of the arguments when Picard is meeting with the uh, main leaders on. I can't remember the name of the planet that they were on um, right. when they were doing but, yeah, this, but, but that was one of the Americans, key parts. Yeah. Yes, that was one of the key things that they were stressing was that, you know, this one, that the treaty was absolutely necessary, that it was going to save billions and billions of lives. There was no way they could not do this. Right. And it was just like, again, everybody's giving up something. The Cardassians are giving up planets. Federation has to give up planets. You guys are choosing to stay there. And again, don't forget that the Federation offered them settlement elsewhere they were like we will find you other planets on our side right that you can just you can do with what you want we will move you right and and they still said no so in every step of the way i feel like the federation was very clear to them that one what the risks were and two what all of their options were before taking that ultimate risk right and they still said no and then later on here we see flash forward to the preemptor strike in this episode, they've said it multiple times, the Federation abandoned us. No, you chose to leave their protection. Right, well... You chose. That means the Maquis has won a hell of a propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to push back, though, because part of what this episode says is that the man who uh, blows up the Baknor, he's a man uh-huh. who is a farmer who had lived on his farm with his wife and two daughters for 20 years. And like mm. the Native Americans in that episode, not, I mean, let me put it this way. The Native Americans in the episode um, Journey's End, they are on the Cardassian side of the mil- demilitarized border. Like, I'm imagining the demilitarized zone is like this gray area yeah. where no one has real authority, if you will. And then on one side is the Cardassian side. And so, like, they truly are on the Cardassian side. Therefore, they either have to move or accept it. Whereas the demilitarized zone, being this gray area, doesn't have true authority either way. And the Cardassians, and again, this is my interpretation, the Cardassians are abusing that neutral zone, this demilitarized zone, whereas the Federation is is uh, yeah. playing fair. So to, to, to really kind of make it clear... The, the Cardassians are treating the demilitarized zone as if the Federation border of the demilitarized zone is actually the edge of their zone, but they're being very cautious about how they move their weapons around, whereas the Federation truly is holding to their side of the Federation uh, Cardassian demilitarized zone. Um, is that how you so guys I see can, it? Is that demilitarized no, zone like a section? So I can, I can see your argument, but I'm going to counter with I've, I don't believe that in the signing of this treaty and the Federation saying, essentially, we're walking away from this area. We won't, we won't be enforcing any of our laws, code of ethics, anything here in this region, whether you want to say it's directly on this line or whatever. They, that's what the, that's the agreement was saying. You guys are on this side. We're on that side. We need all of our people to be on this side. If you choose to remain anywhere other than on this side, you're giving up your rights, your protection, your whatever. That's how I always interpreted this. And the way that they you know, presented in Journey's End and, again, making those the, the Native Americans understand that's what was going on, I feel like that would have also been what would have been told to any settlers anywhere in this area that, hey, we as the Federation, we are pulling back from here. We are giving up these planets for whatever reason. If you want us to, we will resettle you elsewhere. We will help you with your move. We will transport you. We'll give you building materials. We'll do all these things for you, but you have to leave if you still want to be a part of the Federation. And I feel like there were some who took it and there were some that didn't. And then here they are some five, ten years later, however long it is, and they're mad. And they're right. like, well, the Federation, again, the Federation abandoned us, and I'm going to stick by it and say, I don't I don't feel like the Federation abandoned them. They told them what was going on. They gave you the option on where you could go and live. You said no, thinking that you could, you could handle it. What you didn't expect was how overly hostile and aggressive the Cardassians were going to be. And then as soon as that became apparent to you, you were like, oh, man. Now we have what, to get the Federation comes yeah, the Federation is like, oh yeah, 
Wow, well, so, I'm suddenly faced with the consequences of my decisions. Well, so again, I, I guess I'd push back just a little bit, or at the very least ask that we, or at least get your thoughts, I mean. In the episode Preemptive Strike, the finale of the episode, um, Lieutenant Rowe is on his ship, and she has uh, Riker also posing, I think as a Bajoran, like he's disguised himself as a Bajoran, with her on a, mm-hmm. a ship, and they are... They're trying to like get the Enterprise to cross the border. Like that's what's going to happen. Like so, like the 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 Marquis are on the side of the border. That's the demilitarized zone, which is where they belong in a sense. And the uh, the Enterprise is not supposed to cross the border unless they're enforcing mm-hmm. the demilitarized zone in the sense of they're stopping the Marquis. So that's where I get my understanding mm-hmm. of the demilitarized zone is like a band of planets that are basically in this gray area. Like a no man's yeah, land. It's not like a no man's land as much as like there's no regional authority, which is the mistake the Federation made. It's it's like at least in that part, like the whole idea of that Native yeah. American tribe being on that planet that's in the Cardassian space, that makes sense. They agreed to be in Cardassian space, but this this neutral zone can't maintain it's not neutral there are people there it's not like it's an abandoned set of planets yeah i yeah i think i feel like i think where you're getting stuck is that we were we're that episode focused so much on that one native american group instead of it being like a coalition of leaders from the many planets that were in that sure. zone that would have been a part of that okay. treaty. So I think, and that's and that's how I'm looking at it. Is yes, we saw them on this particular planet dealing with those uh, Native American descendants, but the treaty was for the whole right. region. They were kind of representative of everybody in that group. They were all going to be informed. And either way, I, again, the Federation extended to everyone because that's even what Picard says. Everyone in the zone has the option to relocate, and the Federation will help you. And some chose to do it, and some chose not to do it. And the Bajorans ended up getting involved because they were already, as we've talked about before, they had already been fighting the Cardassians. They had just recently gotten rid of the Cardassians on their home planet. They were very sympathetic to freedom fighters protecting their homes, and that's why the Bajorans were so involved with this weapons trafficking that was going on that Rolaren was investigating. Right. And then she ended up stepping stepping down from Starfleet to go and join. But yeah, that was all I'm still just saying it. That was their choice. Right. They even even if they, you know, uh weren't initially aware of the treaty, at some point they would have become aware right. of the treaty. And they could have easily contacted the Federation and said, Hey, we just found out that you guys aren't you know, enforcing any laws in our area. Can you help us right. move? And the Federation would have been like, sure. And sent a ship to go round them all up and take them out. Cause that's what the Federation does. We've seen them do it time and time again. I just feel like there were some people who were like, nah, I'm going to stay. I can take it. And then the Cardassians showed up and beat them up. And they were like, Oh man, this sucks. I need to move. I need to move. Right. Federation won't help. Yeah. That, that's what I think. I'm sure there was a star date limit on when when Federation protection went away. Yeah. So yeah, you know, and, and they didn't realize some... until after that. Yeah, you know, I mean, that I mean, we do that now. How many of us don't read every single email and then we find out about something and it's like three weeks too late? And we're like, oh man, <laughs> you know. I mean, now granted, that's on a much more insignificant scale, but I'm just saying, if it doesn't seem to be initially important or relevant to you, you probably don't pay it a lot of attention until well after the fact. And then you're like, well, what can I do? And everybody's like, where were you two months ago when this was a big right. deal? And you're like, uh, I don't know. I was playing video games. <laughs> in my fields. You know, right. I was, I was outside. I was, I was planting crops. Like, that's right. what happens. You know? But the Federation has a very clear, consistent history of even in those instances, if a person asks for their help, they give it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, what I'm, and so what I'm saying here is these people just were like, one, we were abandoned, and two, we're not going to take the option that you're giving us, and we're still going to blame you. <laughs> it's like we can't—you can't win for losing with right. those people. So, um, so next question, and this is one of my favorite questions as well: standout performances for this episode. Who do you feel like was just firing all on cylinders? Was just great. Um, couldn't imagine the episode without him. Chris, go ahead. Go once again. Take take point from it. Well, <clears throat> definitely, definitely Cal. I mean, because it, it, I guess I, I'd say probably about the only one that I, I could see 
doing that role other than 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 who we had would would be probably Billy D. Williams, kind of bringing a little bit of Lando aspect to it, but right, yeah, he's right. got a charm to him when he first shows up, and yeah. and, and 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 by the way, like a couple of days ago, it was his birthday, so I thought I thought it was really neat that we're we're talking about it. Like it's Cal Benson's birthday. Two days, two day, like two two or three days. The character, ago. okay, nice. Yeah, the, okay. the actor. The actor. I was gonna say Cal Hudson. <laughs> He's the character. <laughs> the actor. Yeah, it's it's his birthday four hundred years right, from now. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> um. But let's talk about Cal Hudson because I was I would agree I think that he gave a great performance as a uh, as a new character that just kind of walks in here. I loved how similar he was to Ben Sisko. Like even their personal stories were. Um, similar, and they remark on that when when Cal and Ben go into his office, and he's saying, you know, um, about the loss of his wife as well. So we have these two basically hotshot up and coming commanders in Starfleet, ranking officers in their areas, right. right? And they have suffered similar losses. I mean, Cisco, his, I mean, one of the main distinctions that they make for him is obviously that he's got Jake, whereas you know. Um, Cal is all alone. And um, to me, that kind of plays into why Cal ultimately seems a bit more reckless, you know, and a bit more willing to lend himself to a cause like the Maquis because he doesn't have anything else that's really kind of keeping him grounded in his current life and his current role. But other than that, he was very, you know, to me, uh, spot on for um, a counterpart for uh, Ben Sisko. Yeah, because... If if you know Jake happened to have died at the attack of Wolf three five nine as well as Jennifer, you could see Ben kind of taking more of a Maquis route. Yeah, after the loss of Jennifer, he definitely comes off as um, um, PTSD for sure. Mm-hmm. He's very withdrawn, and it does seem like the only time that we ever really see Cisco light up is when he's dealing with Jake. Yeah. In fact. It, David and I have talked consistently about how some of our favorite moments are the the <laughs> sub show on here, which is the Cisco's. That's what I like to call it. You know, you, you have you have Star Trek the Deep Space Nine, and then you have at home with the Cisco's. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, so I mean, they're just they're just so such great moments, and even in this one, even though we don't see Jake this episode, the concern oh, yeah. that Cisco has. When he's you know worried about where his son may be and how basically everything stops until Kira informs him where Jake is, I loved every bit. Yeah, of it. when he goes in there and he calls out, "Where Jake? Where are you?" and Gold Zuka says he's not here. Cisco's immediately on the defensive, and Gold Zuka's like, "Oh, do you really yeah. think I yeah. would do such a thing as kidnapping your son?" And Cisco's like, "I think you're capable of anything." Oh, yeah, you're yeah, Gold <laughs> right. I, I was, you know, I remember the first time I watched it, and when he asked that question, I was like, "You better hope Jake walks around that corner because yeah. that man's about to attack you." <laughs> so, yeah, and the 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 relationship between those two has always been very impressive to me, and I always enjoyed. And even in, again, we don't even see Jake here, but the the way that Cisco is basically like, mm-hmm. "I don't care about anything else until I know where Jake is," and then he allows Gold Ducat to continue. Right. I appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. I would say my for the who was the best character or the best. Uh, yeah, who was the best character this episode? It's got to be Cisco. Um, it's this is kind of a Cisco episode. He's the one who gets most of the action, um, mm-hmm. and he gets uh, he gets a lot of the the mo- he gets to be laughing um, with uh, what's what's his friend's name? I can't remember. Yeah, Cal. With Cal. Cal Hudson, they laugh. Cal Hudson, and, uh, he comes on the station, and and he realizes that Jadzia is Dax, and they 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 joke, but then you know there's the whole banter about is, <laughs> is Cisco dating Dax, and he's like, no, he's he's not Curzon, but he's that still, was a great or she's scene. still Dax, so hilarious. Uh, but then he gets angry. He is. I don't think he was more angry than anywhere else in any other episode so far, except maybe the the pilot when he was with. Picard, but that was a cold anger with Picard. This one, he's actually a hot anger. Uh, he's in this tough position of having to uphold the Federation treaty. Meanwhile, his uh, his his running the station is in question because there's a ship that's blown up and there've been two kidnappings 
um, he's having to talk with the, the, the admirals about what's going on. And, and then my, my favorite small scene in this was when Odo was uh, there, like the group of them, Odo, Kira, Bashir, O'Brien, Dax, they're, they're outside his office Dax. and they're talking and, and Odo lets loose. He, he says he thinks the Federation is, are dumb. I don't know exactly what word he uses, but like they're, Basically, yes. the Confederation is soft. Yeah. He's like, you, you guys, you won't, you won't want me let to give me you security, it. but then you don't, uh, give don't me a Federation rule book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he says, un- untie my hands, curfew. allow me to impose a, uh, yeah, yes. impose a curfew, 50 more deputies, yes. he, do random searches. He basically searches. wants to lock yeah. down the whole station and just run it. I mean, I, uh, he wants to be an authoritarian, basically. <laughs> and he, right, and that's what Kira he, says. He He's like, yeah, you do that, and it would be just like... Right, and that's what and that's what Kira says. She's like, "Yeah, you do that." And he's be like, just like, "But it was safer or something." Like, he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he says. And Kira's like, "Yeah, <laughs> for safe. the Cardassians." Great scene uh, again. I love that moment because it's basically Odo letting loose. Like again, we've never heard him directly critique the Federation before. We've never seen him really comment yeah. on how he thinks that his job should be done. I mean, he's made small comments like, "I want to do this. I want to do that." Uh, ask Cisco for for permission or stuff like that, but this is the first time he lets people know his mind. And Kira pushes back against him, and then Kira also pushes back against Cisco about um, you know, defending, as I think, uh, as Chris you said, defending the, um, the 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 people in the the demilitarized zone. Like she knows what it's like to live under Cardassian mm-hmm. rule, so she sympathizes with these Maquis people who are trying to defend themselves against Cardassians. And again, Cisco is sitting there and he's, he's pissed at her for her challenging him. Uh, he basically, he gives a, he has a great dismissal. Yeah. He just hits the button to the door. It doesn't tell her to get out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. There's the door. Uh, get so out. The, the right. Right. The of this episode was great. We have these characters in conflict, Cisco with Gold Ducat, Gold Ducat oh, yeah. claiming that he came of his own volition, but then he knows how the, the runabout works he knows that they had captured the guy and they, they've mm-hmm. got the confession. Um, so is Gold Ducat really a renegade? Uh, it doesn't look like it. He actually has some sort of other scheme going. But then he gets himself kidnapped. Um, and again, we're left with that part of the story up in the air for part two. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. You have the conversations between... Um, Cal and, and, and Cisco, where they're debating on the right after the argument between the colonists and uh, Gully Vec about what happened, and you can sense mm-hmm. that he is sympathetic to the colonists and to the Maquis, which haven't yet been revealed yet. Um, so when he is revealed as the leader of the Maquis, we're not surprised. We're more surprised that he would betray his Federation loyalty uh, to join the Maquis. Um, and again, if we've seen the episode with Rolick. Laren, uh, Lieutenant Rowe at that point, it's the same kind of story. She betrays the Federation for the Maquis, but we really get to see her come to that decision in that episode, which is why it's so great. So we don't get to see him make that decision, but we can understand it. And and in both situations, when when you're, look, if you want to do a comparison, you know, it is not just these officers, you know, Rowe, Laren, Cal Hudson portraying Starfleet and the Federation, it's betraying these other officers who meant so much to them. Like when Roe yes, turns yeah. her back on Picard, mm-hmm. really. You know, and she's and she's telling Riker to tell Picard this give him this message because, you know, she can't face him. She can't do it because he has been this person who's really believed in her and pushed her and, you know, really helped her gain newfound success in her career because we know when we first meet Roe Laren, she is a troubled officer to say the least, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then we have the, you know, uh, a similar situation here with Cal trying to um, explain to Cisco his reasoning. And in a way, he's also trying to convince Cisco to join him. He's like, if you, you know, if you saw what I saw, if you had been here and watched what was going on, you'd be joining us. And he, you know, he's almost trying to get Cisco to come along. And Cisco is just, is obviously holding firm that he's not going to. And seeing that disappointment in his friend, this person who he thought he knew, who in a lot of ways, again, right. they mirror each other so well. I think that's a part of the issue for, for Cisco is that, you know, here's this person who 
he sees a lot of himself in, and he does probably wonder if he would have ever done anything like that. And I mean, we once again are seeing how serious Cisco takes his his oath and dedication to Starfleet, and anybody who steps on that, um, <laughs> man, Lord help you, because uh, yeah, it's not it's not going to go very well for you, not at all. So, of course, since we asked who gave the best performance, we have to ask, who gave the worst? Who did we just not need? Who could we have just been like, we heard your lines where they literally could have been said by anyone? Chris, again, do you want to take first crack at it? Well, <clears throat> I mean, as, as, as much as I, 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 I enjoyed him as a character, I think actually... Bashir probably could have sat this one out. <laughs> oh, that's funny because Bashir gets a lot of hate from us on here. So oh, I don't feel it's intentional, but it, it well, happens. And, and, Bashir has and, a lot of and especially since you guys are so early on and, you know, we haven't really gotten that, that, that Garishir thing going yet. So don't spoil I, it. For I didn't hear anything. He, he blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> We we've seen we've seen some redeeming moments of Bashir, but yes, typically whenever this question is asked, Bashir's yeah. neck is on yeah, the job almost every time. Very so um, actually, O'Brien gets a little more participation because he's the one who helps determine the bomb. He has yeah, to explain but other the bomb. Than that, he doesn't really yeah. participate all yeah. that much. I feel like he had something to say during that and, five person, like they're all standing around waiting for Cisco to come out of his office, but. Yeah, because I think they were they were they were kind of discussing what had happened to the Bachnor. Yeah, and yeah, they each got their own little line. You know, I mean, obviously it was mainly Kira and Odo, but even Dax, you know, she throws in a whole deflection there about no one's placing blame on anybody. And I think um, um, Bashir says uh, not Bashir, but uh, Cisco. <laughs> man, I'm all over the place. O'Brien, excuse me. O'Brien says something to the you know effect of just. I don't know that it wouldn't it wouldn't be appropriate. Something about the way that he wanted the organization right. down wouldn't be appropriate. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, once again, Bashir, sorry man, you just um you're just kind of there, you know. We we haven't really seen much of you in the yeah. past few episodes yeah. really. So, um, you know, maybe maybe we'll get more in part 2. Maybe he'll do some more um Bashir-esque <laughs> heroics which, you know, Bashir's Bashir's thing yes. is wholly flinging himself <laughs> into dangerous situations. He, he doesn't really seem yes. to think about it. He just jumps in there and almost right. gets himself hurt or killed yeah. while trying yeah. to be the hero. So um, we, we love him for that, but otherwise he doesn't really say much. So Now, now I, there's one thing I did forget about this episode. It did, you know, bring back the, uh, the, the classic TOS trope of sending your captain, your, your, for the first officer and the doctor on the away <laughs> <Yeah>. mission. <laughs> oh, and you know what? So many, so many shows do that. In fact, I was watching the Orville last night, and that is it, like literally what happened. They they got to a new area, and they took the admiral, the captain, the first officer, the doctor, and the chief pilot. And I was like, "Who's left <laughs> on the ship? Who's doing anything? Like why?" And it's like it's I'm like it's still happening. We're still doing this. No one has learned. Like you don't take your whole command staff and all of your hot shots. You don't all go on the thing. So, um, but yeah, that seems to be a recurring theme across like all all sci-fi shows. Is all of your best main characters must go and put themselves right. in the maximum amount of danger. Um, you know, um, yeah. TOS was was no stranger to doing this. TNG yeah. continue to do it. They they all do it. Yeah. Deep Space Nine, Voyager, they even they still do it now. Even on the new shows, they still do exactly that. You know, Strange New Worlds. I watched that. I'm like, okay, your captain and your best science officer are trapped. Your first officer is trapped over here. Your pilot's trapped over there. Who's doing right. any work <laughs> anywhere back on the ship? Like, who that- knows what? So um, I, I think that's really interesting. And I would love to see a just one show, <laughs> just one show, be like, you know what? We're right. not going to send the senior staff. Yeah. Let's put, wake yeah, the up the BT, the send them out wait, there, wait. and let's, don't, and let's don't see what happens. Lower decks, though. 
<laughs> yeah, but that's a cartoon, so it's yeah. kind of expected. It's kind of expected, and we see the chaos that ensues there. I would kind of like to see that right. in in live action. Yeah, you know, let's instead of Picard, you know, leading the charge, let him send out uh, not his first officer, but maybe the third in command. Yeah, you're yeah. you're ready for a little bit more of leadership. Get so, out there. Get shot a couple so that times. That reminds me, Perry. If I mentioned the us. book Red Shirts to you, it's by John Scalzi. Scalzi. It's about that trope of uh, the only person who gets hurt is the red shirts, right, from the first, uh, the original show. And so at the very beginning of this plot mm. of this book, which is meant to be a parody of Star Trek, um, the senior staff all goes on a mission, but they have like one or two red shirts with them. And these two red shirts die in the opening sequence. But as one of them is dying, he has a flash forward of his life and realizes that he's like on a TV show and that his whole life was meant for this moment so that the the main the captain can have a redeeming moment with the admiral cuz he's the admiral's son and oh, how the episode wow. is going to play out where the admiral's mad at him but they they make up by the end of the episode and uh, that's a fun book it's a great little it's a parody of Star Trek where the the characters start to realize they're basically on a TV show uh, and how that uh, what they what they do about that uh, but it's Again, the, the characters who realize they're on a TV show are the red shirts, not the main cast. So that's a fun book that kind of plays oh. to this. Yeah, why why did this why does the senior staff get thrown into all these dangerous situations, but seemingly escape unharmed? And then if there is anyone harmed, it's always some person whose name we never know. <laughs> or, um, you know, I I think that Next Generation kind of was initially aware of this and they tried to change it up and they created a whole other trope which is we denote seriousness by beating up our strongest character <laughs> Worf got smacked around more than any other character on that show and it was it got to the point where it was it was yeah. frustrating and then it became laughable it was like it doesn't make any sense like I don't care how souped up on adrenaline whatever the guy the big bad is supposed to be not all of them should be well, the best, throwing Worf up against The best episode that did that was the one and, where and uh, uh, Counselor Troy gets possessed by those spirits, the the criminals. And oh, as soon as Worf yeah. shows up and like goes to you know, you know, put her in cuffs or whatever, she like knocks him back with her arm and throws him against the wall. <laughs> it's like, how does being possessed by a, right. a criminal like, spirit make her suddenly super strong? But anyway. Right, like even if even if somehow that was to to be believable, a surge of the the, the possessing creature surges uh, hormones, adrenaline, whatever through her her <laughs> bone structure exactly. would not have allowed for that to happen. She would have been she might have been able to deliver the blow, but to lift him up and send him flying the way she did, yeah. her arm should have been broken. Yeah. Should have been broken for anybody who's thrown a punch, you know. There's just no way that you wouldn't have gotten some damage. And she was, not only was she fine, it was like it never happened. She like immediately turned and was back to doing whatever right. other heinous crap that the right. aliens were making her do. You know, just like, come on, come on, give me, give me some realism. At least right. let that skin be bruised or something. Yeah. Give me something here. And they gave us nothing. Yeah, and then, nothing. then they ran out of strong people to throw at war, so they just tossed a barrel on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They finally... Didn't, didn't know what else to do, so we just dropped yeah, this barrel, which so bounced, by the way. It dangerous at it all. bounced. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was probably a Not at all. I was like, wait a yeah, minute. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it was, what was yeah. it, like a, a glorified yeah. beach ball, and it hits him and breaks his breaks his super <laughs> spine. He's got two of them, and they're both crushed. Uh. Come on. And then, you know, Voyager was the same. It was, you know, if, if there's ever a problem... Tuvok is, you know, he was the security chief and he was the Vulcan, you know. So Vulcans have a strength that's supposed to be, what is it, three to five times that of, like of that, humans yeah. or whatever that's supposed to be. So, of course, him getting beat up, smacked around, otherwise incapacitated, that's how you knew it was serious. Oh, man, wait, they, they wait, took out no, our Vulcan. I'm, I'm seeing, seeing a pattern here with that, though. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, our security chiefs. Our security chiefs are the first ones taken out. Heck, they just straight up killed yeah. Tasha. They didn't even mess around there. They were yeah. just like, "Done, you're out." You know. So, I I haven't seen that so much on uh, Strange New Worlds or Picard. But I mean, well, Picard's done now. And Stranger uh, Strange New Worlds is still kind of new, so yeah. we may get there. 
we may get there. We'll see. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just wish that they didn't do so much of, like, trope-heavy stuff, I guess. Right. At the end of the day, we're looking at it. So we are coming up on the end of our time here discussing this first part, but I have to ask, of course, what would you like to see in part two? We've got this great story that's been laid out before us. We get this great reveal at the end of Cal Hudson and his duplicity and how that has you know, impacted uh, Cisco a little bit there. What do you feel like should Dan be Dan, Chris, go for it. Okay. Well, I can say we'll, we'll, we're definitely going to get a resolution. Um I don't think that, that Cisco's going to be able to convince his old buddy Cal to, to come back to the Federation. But, you know, Cisco's going to try because that's the kind of guy he is. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I, I would say that I look forward to that conversation. Okay. Uh, I can see Cisco now. He's going to have that quietly angry, quietly kind of pissed off, disappointed look about Cal having betrayed Federation standards and. He's just going to be kind of passive-aggressively mad at his friend until they have it out, and Tisco will passionately say something, and Cal will passionately say something. So I, I look forward to that because, again, they, they you can tell that they have a relationship. These characters are supposed to be friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I look forward mm-hmm. to Odo maybe having run at the station for an episode and saying, I'm going for it. Uh, I doubt we'll <laughs> see much of that, unfortunately. But, um, yeah. Yes, more Cisco and him defending the Federation and maybe compromising the Federation's treaty, you know, finding a workaround or suggesting to the Admiral sometime along. Like, we got to change how things work. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I would like to see more of Cisco and Kira, actually, on this one, because Kira is obviously so sympathetic to the cause of the Maquis. And she, as she indicated, she grew up with the Cardassians occupying her planet 26 years. So we kind of get a snapshot there of a timeline for her. 26 years under Cardassian control and brutalization and fighting as a resistance fighter and all of that. Um, so I would love to see more of an interplay between those two characters kind of explaining their perspectives and seeing if they can work back towards the middle ground. Because that has been one of the core parts of everything that we've seen so far in this show is these two characters finding a way to work right. towards each other and being on the same on the same team and it's always interesting when something comes up that you know we we almost get used to Kira kind of falling in step with Cisco for a minute and then something happens and we see how vastly different Right. And how far apart they really are. So I really love seeing those scenes play out. And now that we've got this reveal of Cal, I would love to see Kira being the one, not Dax for a change, but Kira being the one that comes to um, Cisco and tries to talk to him about understanding Cal and where he's coming from and what he's really fighting for in regards to truly understanding the Cardassians and their brutality and what they're all about so that would be something for me that i would just really like to see um play out now of course i've seen this episode count several <laughs> times i'm not gonna tell you what happened. i think you might be I'm hinting toward what might be happening that's what i, that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> oh maybe a little, a little foreshadowing yeah. well actually think, little mild say, spoiler, and maybe? Here, here's another hint too galdicott's gonna think the show's about <laughs> oh yeah so. i forgot he's he's still out there <laughs> oh yeah yeah well. i would um that's our that's our other sub subplot is you know you have Deep Space Nine, the Cisco's, and the Goldacot show. Uh, uh, as you were talking about Kira, though, that reminded me, Perry, of um, you know Kira actually has had a little bit of experience with the whole idea of moving someone off of the land they're on. Uh, I'm sure you remember the one I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, I'm trying to pull up the episode at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Progress. Progress. Is that it? Yeah, the one where she. Uh, has to go to the old man on the moon around Bajor, and they want to use it for what is it? Energy? They want to like drain mm-hmm. it of its like energy. They wanted to tap the core so that they could, um, yeah, yeah, use the geothermal energy for for ba- for actual right. Bajor, so not she's this the, moon. And she's the oh, one who old has man to convince him to leave his property. And um, very sad episode. Really, another great one. Um, so it, it's interesting that I. I doubt Kira's going to remember that episode in terms of, like, you know, she's going to refer to it in any way, but um, 
technically she's had some experience on the other side of this question about, you know, sometimes people got to move out of the way for the greater good. Um, so, yeah. Well, all right. Any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Looking forward to the next part. Woohoo. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have some, and that is, of course, always talking about um, New Trek. If you're not watching Strange New Worlds, you should. Also, by now, everybody should know that, finally, the very last holdout, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, is leaving Netflix July 1st. So if you've been watching it there, you won't be able to after July 1st. You will have to go to at least Paramount+. Plus. I think I heard earlier that Pluto might still have it, (laughs) but I think that that's also supposed to be ending. So pretty sure that that's the Pluto app. Um, but pretty soon it looks like the only place you're going to be able to find any Trek will be Paramount plus. So go ahead, get your subscription. It's still pretty cheap right now. I probably, I anticipate that'll probably end once they've kind of like, you know, consolidated their base. Once everything is there, that's, that's when you'll probably see a price hike. So go ahead, get yourself signed up and get yourself caught up and then enjoy all the other Trek shows that are out there. But, um, as always, you can listen to us, The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast, anywhere you listen to podcasts. I happen to do it on Spotify. And, of course, you can find us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all the other social medias because we're there and we have fun and we're awesome. So do so. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, get them to us that way. Other than that, guys, it was fun talking with you, Chris. Thank you for joining us this week, and we look forward to rounding this out with you next week yeah, not a problem and uh yeah David, as always again, guys it was fun <laughs> so, so take care of yourselves guys we'll see you next week bye